we have been fighting, I think, what is the wrong battle. I think we go into prisons and say, man, they just need to be transformed by the gospel. And, 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 and yes, I do believe that the gospel is the power unto salvation. I truly believe that. But I also believe there needs to be some tangible things that follow that. How are we equipping people with the renewing of their mind and truly giving them not just education, but the resources to pursue Welcome to the Fighting Racism series, a project made in collaboration with the Footnotes podcast and the Religion News Service. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, author of How to Fight Racism. And this week, we're taking a look at giving the formerly incarcerated a chance at true freedom with our guest, Stanley Franker. As always, we delve into the problem, talk about the human impact, and most importantly, we'll look at what someone just like you is doing to fight racism today. But first, a bit of context. This topic of incarceration has been a priority for me since at least 2015 with the killing of Mike Brown, when I looked into policing and that led into broader investigations about the criminal legal system, about incarceration, about the death penalty. I also have some experience teaching in prisons. When I was in graduate school for my PhD, I was a teaching assistant at the Mississippi State Penitentiary better known as Parchman Farm, which was founded in the 1900s as essentially a plantation with forced labor. I also taught at the Marshall County Correctional Facility, and this exposed me to what life was like on the inside, as well as to the humanity of the people inside. Now, if you are a person of faith, there's a biblical basis for looking at incarceration and people who we consider prisoners. Just a couple of passages from Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. This is where Jesus is announcing his public ministry. He unrolls the scroll of Isaiah in the temple, and he begins reading, and it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, get this, freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Another passage comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, and it says, Continue to remember those in prison, as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated, as if you yourselves were suffering. Those are just a couple of the many passages, including Matthew chapter 25, about visiting people in prison. And so, what's interesting is, Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time on why folks are in prison. Could be because of persecution, like Jesus himself and many of his disciples were imprisoned simply for preaching the gospel. It could be for some other reason, like they broke the law or due to an injustice. Jesus doesn't talk a whole lot about that, but does say, remember them as if you were together with them in prison. Does say, visit them. Does say, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners of all kinds. So, at the very least, however you interpret those passages specifically in the present day, what should be clear is that Jesus remembers the prisoner, and as people of faith, so should we. Now, as we dive into some of the ins and outs of incarceration in the United States, let me clarify some terms. You'll often hear me say the criminal legal system versus the criminal justice system. That's for a couple of reasons. People who are advocates and activists in this space often talk about how the criminal justice system is unjust. 
how it is unfair, how it doesn't dole out justice, but injustice. They also talk about how laws, just because they're laws, don't mean they're just, don't mean they're right, don't mean they're righteous. We can think about laws promoting segregation. Those were laws, and it was illegal to break those laws, but it wasn't unjust because the law itself was unjust. So instead, many people use the phrase criminal legal system, and that denotes that there are laws, and whether they are just or unjust, if you break them, you can be convicted. Uh, but it doesn't imply that those laws are necessarily just simply because they're laws, so criminal legal system. You'll also hear us say terms like incarcerated people versus prisoners or inmates. Uh, it's for a lot of reasons that are similar to the reason why we say as historians enslaved people rather than slaves. Because to be a slave denotes that that's your entire identity. That's your sort of ontological existential being. That's who you are rather than a state you're in. And saying enslaved person gets more at that. That's a state that you're in. The same with incarcerated people. You're not an inmate. This was a very dehumanizing term. I noticed when I was teaching inside of prisons, they would call human beings who had first, middle, and last names, they would call them inmate, this depersonalized term that could be for everyone. Or they would refer to them by their number that they were assigned as an incarcerated person. And all of those terms are dehumanizing because it depersonalizes the human being. And so we call them incarcerated people. You'll hear our guest, Stanley Frankert, say justice involved people. The basic idea is that being in prison isn't the sum total of who a person is. You should also know there's a difference between jail and prison. So jail is for short-term detention, it's for sentences of less than one year, and it's even for people who are not convicted and they're just awaiting trial, which is a big, big problem because a lot of times the people in jail awaiting trial are there simply because they can't afford bail or court fees. And so it punishes, even criminalizes, poverty. Uh, there's an organization you can look up. It's called the Vera Institute, V-E-R-A. And this comes from an article. It says this about jails. And while jails may hold people who have been convicted of low-level offenses and face sentences to incarceration that are typically less than a year, the vast majority of people in jail, approximately two-thirds, have not been convicted of a crime. Rather, in most cases, they are detained pre-trial because they simply cannot afford bail. So they're stuck in jail while they wait for their day in court. That could be days, weeks, months, or even years away. Let's talk about prisons. Prison is for long-term detention, more than a year. And it should be noted that the U.S. has extraordinarily long prison sentences. One in seven incarcerated people has a life sentence. Now, when I was teaching in prisons, I ran into men who broke the law at 17, 18, 19 years old, and they received a life sentence or basically a life sentence. It would be 30, 40, 50 years. And here they are as folks in their 50s and 60s still doing time for something they did as a teenager. 
Think of all the things you did as a teenager. If you had been caught, if you had been sentenced for something you did as a teenager, and that's what these men are facing. We should also say a word about the condition of prisons, right? Like it's not comfortable in there. And a lot of people think, oh, well, they committed a crime. They shouldn't be comfortable. But there's a difference (laughs) between being in luxury and being in squalor. Here's another quote from the Vera Institute. People in both jail and prisons face cruel and abusive conditions. These include violence, overcrowding, wholly inadequate health care, unhealthy processed foods, freezing and sweltering temperatures, and rules that make it almost impossible to stay connected to loved ones. Now, I've seen all of this. Just being a teacher in a prison, not even being incarcerated myself, I saw the unhealthy processed foods these grown men would get. They were tiny servings. We were there over the lunch hour, but lunch often came two or three hours late. And we were in Mississippi, and it would either be freezing or sweltering. The heat would never work as well as it needed to, and the air conditioning surely never worked. I remember these huge industrial fans. They had one at either end of the hallway just blowing hot, humid air indoors back and forth between one fan and another. Those are experiences, real human experiences within jail and prison. Let me give you just some numbers around prison as we transition into the interview section. The United States locks up more people per capita than any other nation. 565 people per 100,000. That's nearly 2 million people nationwide in all the systems. That means local, state, and federal prisons. Now, state prisons, as opposed to local and federal prison, incarcerate by far the most people and have more than half of incarcerated individuals. You want to know the states with the highest rates of incarceration? Here are the top three. Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas. Now, these are all states in the former Confederacy. They all have significantly large black populations. And, fun fact, I've lived in two of the three of those states, Mississippi and Arkansas. Just FYI, because I know you're curious, states with the lowest rates of incarceration include Rhode Island, Maine, and Massachusetts. One more word as we talk about the human impact of our obsession with incarceration. Michelle Alexander wrote the book The New Jim Crow, and her basic thesis was that our unjust legal system creates a permanent underclass of people, much like Jim Crow made black people into second-class citizens. Our criminal legal system makes people who are involved second-class citizens. Why? Because after incarceration, it's harder to get a job, harder to get housing, harder to get education, funding for education, and it's hard on the families of the incarcerated and more. It makes everything harder even after you've done your time. So this week, we're going to talk with someone who knows all too well the challenges of the incarceration system and what it takes to make progress in this area. After the break, We'll be joined by Stanley Frankert to talk about his work in fighting racism through his organization, Young Christian Professionals. 
Full disclosure, Stanley is one of our witness fellows. He's part of the inaugural class that received $100,000 each over the course of two years for their work for social progress and justice. We're funding the next generation of black Christian leaders. You can visit thewitnessfoundation.co. That's thewitnessfoundation.co. I know this is an informative interview that will challenge and inspire you. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This podcast is made possible in part by Zonervan Reflective, the publishers of The Color of Compromise, How to Fight Racism, and How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition by Dr. Jamar Tisby. Zonervan Reflective focuses on faith and culture books that prepare readers to engage the public square with vision and verve, challenge the status quo, ask tough questions, and reflect the thought-provoking answers that call us to action. Zonervan Reflective is a division of HarperCollins Publishing. Visit zondervan.com slash zondervanreflective for all your book purchases. That's zondervan.com slash zondervanreflective for all your book purchases. Welcome to Footnotes in the Fighting Racism series, Stanley Franker. Hey, what's going on, Dr. Tisby, man? Great to be with you. So good to see you again, brother. Last time we were together was in Little Rock, Arkansas. Y'all graciously came down to Arkansas so I wouldn't have to travel so far. Uh, Now I'm in Louisville and, okay, you're based (laughs) out of Ohio. Yes, sir. But you're calling right now from what? Tell us about the event you're, you're there for. Yeah, so I'm actually right now in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and we're working around um, supportive housing for justice-involved individuals. So men, women navigating coming home from incarceration and truly trying to come up with some innovative spirit-led solutions to um, the housing crisis, right? So like nationwide, we have a housing crisis. You add the barrier of having a criminal conviction on your background, and literally statistics show you're 10 times more likely to end up homeless with a one felony conviction on your background. So here we are in Philadelphia. (laughs) You said 10x more likely with one felony conviction. One felony conviction. And that increases exponentially if you have more than one felony conviction. Brother, you already drop in knowledge. I cannot wait for for folks to to get to know you better. Um, Give us a quick overview (laughs) of who you are, what you do, and then we'll kind of dive into your story and what you're doing on an everyday basis to fight racism. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, my name is Stanley Frankart. I am 32 years old. I'm married to an amazing, beautiful, godly wife who, I mean, encapsulates the Proverbs 31 essence. And so, man, being able to have a woman like that supporting me, holding me up some days, um, giving me a shoulder to cry on really gives me the ability to do the work that I do. Um, I also have two beautiful daughters. Um, One is two years old and one is 10 months old. Um, I say that with great, great pride and great, great joy. Um, So, you know, a little bit about me generationally, I come from a single parent household. And so I'm tearing down generational curses simply by being an active and present Mm. father in my household. And also truly trying to do that with a biblical model in mind where my wife has the bold and holy, audacious spirit to go ahead and spearhead stay-at-home motherhood. Mm. And and so, you know, being able to really truly have, um, 
yeah, I would say that companionship, that camaraderie, that 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 laser focus on one singular goal, um, it really gives me the fuel I need, if you will, um, to continue to do the work day in, day out, long nights, early mornings, flights, red eyes, you know how it goes. And um, really, truly being able to have that confidant through this process to, you know, one, pray with me, fast with me, um, but two, also to encourage me and inspire. Right. So like some of my greatest ideas, the Holy Spirit gives to me through my wife. Mm. And so, yeah, I've been in this work. So I've been in this work since 2015. Um, I actually started this while incarcerated and we can dive a little bit into that later. (laughs) um, (laughs) We'll get into all of that, man. Um, congratulations on, on your family, uh, that is, that is massive. And, and what's so striking to me is you're a young man, (laughs) still a young man, but you've already done some living. So I want to spend most of our time on your organization, Young Christian Professionals, but uh, you had a rocky road getting to where you are now, which is talking about solutions to massive issues and being part of uh, a a movement for justice today. So tell us about, um, you, you mentioned justice involved individuals. Tell us about your involvement with the justice system at an early age. Yeah. So this strikes a real passionate chord for me in my in my soul. Um, so, you know, 10 years old, uh, I found my way uh, into the school to prison pipeline. Um, 10 years old, felony conviction um, for a, a felonious assault in school. Um, so, you know, I'm, you know, 10 years old, fifth grade, got into a fight in school, um, led to, you know, the gentleman, you know, ended up with a broken jaw. And and that was heinous. That was that was cruel. That was not how it was supposed to happen. But um, that resulted in me getting 36 days um, in the juvenile detention facility and then six months ankle monitor after that. As a 10 year old. 10 years old. Um, And so, yeah, that put me in this deep, dark abyss, uh, what I call the the punitive justice system of America. And um, so literally from 10 years old until I was 28 years old, uh, I was on some form of supervision, justice involvement in and out of institutions. Um, And prior to uh, my last incarceration, which ended in 2017, um, I was literally uh, only home uh, the longest three months at a time. And so, yeah, it was intense. It was intense. It was heavy. It was a lot. yeah, are man. you are you saying in that eighteen year period from ten to twenty eight, the longest you were home was three at one months? time was three months. You've got to be, yeah, yeah, wow, yeah. yeah. So it was a vicious, vicious cycle, man. And mind you, I was you know living in a single parent household, so my mother, you know, struck with trying to raise a young boy into a man, you know, but then also trying to provide for our family with one income. And then add the nuisance of her taking that journey with me of being justice mm-hmm. involved mm-hmm. Um, and, and and her kind of being green to the arena of justice involvement. So, you know, I had uh, it, it would have felt like I had all the odds against me. Um, and, and, and from some people's perspective, that may be very true. Um, so, you know, when I was in it, it felt like that. But then in 2011, I was 21 years old. Uh, in prison. I'm still gangbanging. I'm selling drugs. I'm doing all the things that led to my incarceration. 
Um, the crime I committed, I committed it when I was 16 years old that led to a 10 year sentence. Um, and so essentially, um, you know, again, in a lifestyle of selling drugs, heavily gang involved um, and, and doing criminal activity on a regular basis as a means of survival um, led to me shooting somebody in the face, man. Um, probably one of the lowest points in my life. And I have done I would, you know, Paul has the title of chief of sinner. I say mm. I was close in the running. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, really looking at my life from that lens of, man, I literally didn't know college was an option because nobody in my immediate purview uh, either went to college and there wasn't no college campus within a two hour radius of where I lived. Wow. So like college wasn't a reality for an individual like me. And so people will say, well, why didn't you pursue sports? Or why didn't you pursue college? Because that's not what was around. Um, so yeah, I went to prison at 16. Um, they put me in the juvenile justice system. Um, they bonded okay. me over to the adult system at 18. And that's when the evidence emerged that the gentleman that I had shot ended up living. So I started off facing a life sentence. So 18. you didn't even know from 16 to 18 for sure? No. I thought he was so last time I had known before I got sentenced, he was in critical care on life support. Wow. And that's the last you heard. That was the last years. What is going on psychologically for you? I mean, because I don't I don't know. I mean, you think at this. Did you think did you sort of resign yourself to saying, well, I must have killed him? Or did you just leave that question open and lingering? Were you fighting to prove that he was alive? I mean, what was going on? <laughs> Great question. So honestly, I kind of just left that question vague. I just was wow. like, you know what? I don't want to wrestle with the reality that if I did that, like there was, although I was calloused, I was hard hearted, had no form of spirituality in my life at all. There was still this kind of, you know, as, as Romans talks about, there's this moral code, kind of moral law written on the tablets of our heart. And so I didn't want to wrestle with the conscience mm. of, really, you know, contemplating, did I murder this man? You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and at 16 years old, you know, thinking through that, um, I think I just resigned to, hey, this is the way it is in the streets. And people understand that, that are from the streets. So I guess I'm just going to have to take the consequences as they come. Yeah. And you said this is what survival was like. Tell us what, tell me again where you grew up. Like what city? Yeah. So I grew up in Sandusky, Ohio. Um, but then I kind of hop, jump, skipped around growing up. My mother always resorted to moving, trying to get me away from the problem. But the issue was that I was the problem. So mm -hmm. everywhere we moved, it was perpetuated. Do you trace that anger or that rebellion to some particular source? Or was it just sort of the context you were in? Yeah. So a uh, great question. I think it's a combo. I think it's a combination of those things. So I think one, um, I, I had deep rooted trauma from a stepfather who physically abused me. Mm -hmm. And so um, my way of, of trying to, you know, exhibit manhood was to, you know, be the most aggressive, be the most uh, violent, be the one that was, you know, we call it in, in, in the hood, we call it trained to go. Right. So like on a moment's notice, you know, it's like lighting a match on a moment's notice I'm, I'm ready to strike um and, and and that was my way of being defensive if that makes sense so that was my way of trying to combat you know what happened to me at five years old from my stepfather um but i also think there's a theory especially in social work uh called the person and environment theory 
And that, you know, it essentially says that an individual is comprised or the issues in their life is comprised of all of the peripheral issues within the environment. So Mm. you can look at the educational systems. You can look at the religious systems. You can look at the family uh, institution within those communities. Um, You know, what is in, you know, a a one mile radius of where this person lives? Is it, you know, uh, drug stores and alcohol stores and liquor stores? Or is it, you know, um, local churches, you know, how it is deep south, right? Every corner has a church, um, you know, kind of deal. Or is it like, hey, housing projects, so on and so forth. So this theory, um, it's a working theory in social work, but I think it's a theory that people are coming to understand um, that a person is deeply impacted by their immediate environment and surroundings. And so really unpacking that, I think for me, it was a combination of that deep-seated trauma from when I was five years old with a stepfather who was physically abusive and also the person in environment theory and social work, the convolution of all of those things comprising some of my issues. I'm just an educator at heart. I was a sixth grade teacher and a middle school principal and now a college professor. And I'm wondering what a 10 year old Stanley, what a 16 year old Stanley, what an 18 year old Stanley how are you getting an education? Because most of that time you're on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. What does schooling look like? Yeah. <laughs> so it, my education, just to be very, very transparent, has all been self-education. Wow. Um, literally, I ride around in my car. I got a 2020 Chevy Trex, nothing, you know, flamboyant or anything, <laughs> nothing sexy. Um, it, it's literally, man, good econ car gets me good mileage. I travel a lot for work, but um, in the backseat of my car, um, I have two college textbooks, one on criminology and one on sociology. Mm. And so I literally self-read. And then I also make sure to put the lens of scripture through that. Um, And I think for me, that gives me that healthy balance of saying, how do I make sure um, all of my values and all of my tenets are rooted in biblical truth? But then how do I also allow the spirit of God to move me in a way in which I am doing good to the humanity around? Right. So, I mean, the twofold command, right, the the greatest commandment, Jesus said, was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, but then to also love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's what the word says. Now, you mentioned, you know, looking at being self, first of all, amazing, like amazing motivation, discipline to self-educate, to continue even to this day to inform yourself. as you are incarcerated, is God in the picture? Is religion in the picture? Or how did that come about? Man, man, I, I wish I could say it was. Um, so early in my journey, just to be really transparent, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, never prayed, never seen a Bible outside of being in the justice system. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't have that as an early part of my journey. Um, the tide kind of turned. I believe God had his hand on me all throughout that experience. I truly believe that. And when I look back or if you if you want to use some holy language, when the Holy Spirit brings those things back to my remembrance, um, I'm reminded of instances where I literally see the divine providence and sovereignty of God. Okay. And um, I have to look back in order to see that, though, because in the moment, not having a spiritual understanding, not having the Holy Spirit in me to illuminate spiritual things. I didn't understand all of those concepts. Um, But at 21 years old, I had an encounter in the midst of a gang fight in prison. Um, And so literally um, in a gang fight, six of uh, of our gang members, they were up there to fight 10 other gang members. 
Um, I was left to be jumped, stabbed, kicked, punched by 10 other individuals as the five guys that I was with um, decided they didn't want any problems. And so, yeah, literally laying on the ground uh, in the multi-purpose room at Richland Correctional Institution. I'll never forget the day, December 28th, 2011. Um, I remember laying on the ground and, and realizing in that moment how powerless I was over my own life. Mm. And realizing that no amount of reputation, no amount of money, no amount of violence, none of that mattered as I was laying on the ground and everything in me wanting to get off of that ground. Um, Theologically, we call this concept the effectual calling, where the Holy Spirit essentially impresses himself upon our stony hearts and gives us a revelation of who he is. And so through this process, I'm on the ground and I said, God, Jesus, whoever you are, if you're real, get me off of this ground. And literally five minutes later, I'm walking out of the multi-purpose room. My life wow. radically changed. Wow. And you knew that in that moment, that was the Holy Spirit. That was God encountering you in, a, in like you say, in an effectual calling. Did things at that moment just turn around for you? Was it a gradual process? Great question. So tr- really, truthfully, it was like a Saul to Paul conversion in mm. three days. Like three I days. equated to three days, man. It took Saul three years, right? Like it took Saul to become Paul for three years in the mountains. But like, like, I think why God was so gracious was because he understood the urgency of my life transformation, right? Like God knows the numbers of the hairs on our heads. He has all of our days numbered before, you know, we even knitted together in our mother's womb. These are all biblical truths that, you know, when we lean into them and we unpack them, we can see them over the course of our life. So I think that, you know, the urgency of my life and why it was so urgent was because literally I was in the thick of it when he saved me. Right. So, you know, it's this idea of Jonah in the belly of the whale and in blatant rebellion, blatant sin, but literally is spit out. And he immediately, no hesitancy, goes to Nineveh. Hmm. Right. I think it's the same concept within my own life and for many other men and women who find uh, some form of, 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 of you know, spirituality within incarceration, specifically for those who are transformed and delivered by way of the Holy Spirit. And so that's literally what happened. Like desires that I had for centuries, like it felt like centuries, but decades, you know, uh, <laughs> like desires were plucked out of me. Hmm. Literally quit smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol in prison. Literally had no desire to want to sell drugs any longer. Um, I was engaged in, in, in relationships with female COs and, and literally knew that there was sinning. And that they were in harm's way participating in these relationships. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm literally negated all of those relationships while in prison. One of the hardest things I ever had to do if I'm being transparent, but I understood the necessity of leaving that life in the past. If I was truly going to walk in the fullness of the liberty I had just experienced. Whoa. What then does your spiritual education or discipleship look like? Because you're still incarcerated, you might be feeling free and liberated spiritually, but your movements are limited and your access to resources is limited. So how you you said you weren't, you know, raised in a Christian environment. How did you go about learning more about God after this dramatic conversion? Yeah, great, great question, man. So this is why what we do is so uh, dear to my heart, man. So discipleship was literally what God used 
to give me spiritual education, spiritual formation, and accountability within Christian community. Um, so I had a friend who, you know, was out on the streets with me. We knew each other um, from previous to incarceration. Um, and he had been to prison. He was walking, you know, trying to figure out his destination and journey. But he had said that he was being, quote unquote, discipled by a guy named Babo. And this is before I had even had any encounter with Jesus. This is before I even wanted anything to do uh, with Christianity or any type of, uh, you know, faith based walk in life. And he told me about this discipleship process. And I said, man, what is that? And, and he said, well, man, he teaches me about the Bible. And I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, whatever, whatever. Fast forward to, you know, when I had the effectual call, I get up off of the ground three days, you know, kind of go by. But the first day, literally divine providence. And I say this wholeheartedly. So I got moved. I was in an active gang member uh, housing unit in prison. Um, literally the day this happened, they called my name and my number over the loudspeaker. Um, they said, pack up your belongings. So I pack up my belongings and I go, and I think I'm going to the hole at this point. I thought they had caught me for the fight and I oh. think I'm going to the hole. <laughs> and so literally this is how supernatural God works. I had a pound and a half of tobacco in my locker box. And I also had a half ounce of weed in my locker box at the time. And I literally gave that away because I thought I was going to the hole. Um, and I had a cell phone in my locker box as well. And so um, I gave my cell phone away, all of that stuff. I go to the front desk and I ask the CEOs, correctional officers, I say, hey, where am I going? Am I on the movement sheet? Like they called my name over the loudspeaker and said, return to the housing unit, I'm moving. And they said, oh, no, you're going to the reintegration door. What? And I still got five and a half years on my sentence. So in my mind, I'm like, there's no way I didn't sign up. And that's one of the requirements. You got to sign up to be a part of this dorm. And I got too much time. Huh. So, boom, I get down to the reintegration dorm. And literally, there's a guy across the street from me. We call them streets. They're just aisleways. But there's a guy across the street from me. And he, <laughs> he has Cardi frames on. It's the only thing that caught my attention. Has Cardi frames on get off of the rack. And, you know, my first thing is like, man, he got to be the plug, man. I, this is all I know. Right. At this <laughs> point, this is pretty much all I know. So I'm like, man, he's got to be the connect. He's got to have some type of way to get access to big drugs. I mean, you don't wear Cardi's if you ain't got a couple of dollars. Right. <laughs> so um, so my, my, my thinking's still the same. And I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this walk. But this is where God's grace became pertinent in my life. When I go over and introduce myself to the guy, his name happens to be Bobo. Oh. And... <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. And the Holy Spirit brings this conversation that I had with my friend Flex. We called him Flex. His name was Alex. Uh, about this guy named Bobo who was discipling. And God put you in the same spot. Come on. As soon as you had that conversion experience. Come on. Come Whoa. On. And so I asked him, I said, man, you're discipling one of my friends named Alex, man. And I don't know what it is all entailing, but if it has anything to do specifically, these are the two names that I said, if it has anything to do with God or Jesus, I need to know because I just had an encounter and I need to figure it out. Wow. And so he said, man, give me three days to pray on it. So over the course of those three days, that's when these things started getting plucked out of me. Um, he said, give me three days to pray on it and, and I'll let you know what the Lord says. So literally day number three, um, he comes to me and he says, man, I heard the Lord say yes. Wow. And so we started our journey in the book of Matthew 
And that trickled into other discipleship relationships with two other men in particular, uh, Savalas Crosby um, and then Alfred Cleveland, um, two of whom, um, one of them is home. The other two are still incarcerated on their way home, Lord willing, um, but still to this day discipling me, um, whether it's via phone calls once a week or, you know, now I get the privilege of going into the prison and I make that one of my main stops every single week to, to go in there and be discipled by these men. Bro, my mind is blown. I'm trying to conceptualize this real life story as you're telling it. Um, that's just incredible, man. I, I I have so many questions, so many questions. Did did folks think you were corny now? I mean, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you you you're, you're alluding to and and talking explicitly about the violence that's yeah. that's inside prisons and. You know, I can't imagine that, you know, giving up these things and, and changing so quickly is something that is seen as as completely positive by other folks. How did other folks react now that you're this rah-rah Jesus dude? Right. Yeah, it was funny, man. So literally, I gave away everything I'd accumulated from selling drugs. Like, I knew I couldn't have any strings attached. So I, I don't have any, like, nice sneakers. I don't have any nice jeans. I'm, I'm literally wearing high waters. And shiny black New Balances. Oh. Okay, and I'm 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 only I'm starting only five. a new style. Oh, listen, <laughs> hey, either that or, or yeah, yeah. <laughs> we ain't gonna talk about what the other part of that is. Yeah, but, um, you know, I, and and so I remember, man, when I quit gangbanging, particularly, um, the guys who you know I had started this gang with, um, I remember them looking at me and they said, "Stan, you can't turn your back on us. You made us." And, and that was a that was the first moment where I think I felt a tug of war spiritually, hmm. because there was this deep seated sense of family, of loyalty, of commitment to these men that I basically grew up in the same neighborhoods with. We ran around barefooted in the same neighborhoods. We ate mama's greens and chitterlings and all of that together. You know, these kinds of like childhood memories that I still remember very vividly and tangibly. But then I also remember the evolution of my life and how I knew I was destined for a different trajectory than the rest of those that I was a part of. I didn't know the trajectory would be following Jesus, um, but I knew it was a different trajectory, um, which is why, you know, they placed me in leadership roles way before I was even prepared and ready for that. But um, yeah. So, man, I remember, man, for 18 months, those same guys, man, who said, man, you can't turn your back on us. You made us. They would crack jokes on me. They would spit at me. They would, you know, be looking at me. And and, and I've beat these guys up physically before. And so it wasn't a matter of like they didn't think I could beat them up. It was just a matter of, I think, for our community specifically and specifically for those who come from urban uh, you know, poverty stricken, um, you know, crime infested areas is what people will call them. Um, I think that people need to see the true character and witness of the gospel lived out, not preached out. And so I think that's what it was for this group of men in particular. They wanted to see if it was authentic, if it was genuine, if it was sincere, because they've seen a form of Christianity, um, but it was the form that kind of denied the power thereof. Whoa. So so you were able to, over time, at least impress upon them like, hey, this is real in my life. I don't know what where you are, what you think about it, but I'm I'm living in such a way that the power and presence of God in my life is just undeniable. I'm going to I'm going to walk the talk and 
I don't know if that won them over, but at least, you know, you were in a different category than, you know, somebody who just said they were Christian and did whatever. Ooh, brother. Wow. Um, you've already given us so much. I have one last question on this topic. Then I want to talk about your organization, Young Christian Professionals. You say you travel a lot for your work. Um, this is at least the third time, uh, second or third time you and I even have touched on your story, although although you've gone into more detail this time than, than any other before. And I, I appreciate and respect and honor that. What does it do to tell this story and to share your testimony so many times? Because it's a story kind of birthed out of pain and trauma and challenge in your life. As you tell this story over and over again to different audiences, does it does it become mechanical for you? Are you still just as excited talking about God? Is it is it painful because you're having to recounting the, these things? For someone who has to sort of express their trauma in the most difficult season of their life over and over again in public, what is the impact or effect on on doing so repeatedly? Yeah, man. I think for me, it's rooted in the the, the hope that's ahead, right? So um, I'm reminded of of Paul when he said, um, you know, for the momentary afflictions we deal with aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that's ahead. And I think for me, I, I press forward toward the mark of the high calling of God that's in Christ Jesus because I get advocacy work. I get being able to truly plant and water seeds of hope for individuals who, similar to me, find themselves in situations that seem hopeless. Mm. So being able to, to, to share with people the deep-seated trauma that I've still had to process and journey through and go to mental health therapists for and go to psychiatrists and really truly do some of that deep heart work that scares everybody of the black and brown communities that we are part of. You know, I remember way, way, way back, you know, we, we, we've gotten a lot better. Praise the Lord for that. But I remember, you know, there was a time in my life where my aunt literally was locked in an upstairs bedroom because she was, quote unquote, crazy. And literally meals dropped off at her door simply because nobody knew how to address mental illness within our community. And so for me, that was something that like, I wanted to rewrite that narrative for my people. And so being able to share my trauma, being able to share my journey of healing and restoration um, via the Holy Spirit, via, you know, true dependency upon the gospel, but also practical things in my life to show people that, hey, you know what, as a Christian, there's no, there's no separation between sanctified and secular. Everything is blended. And as a Christian, I don't care what you do. It's a holy work, whatever it is that you do. If I'm picking up trash at three in the morning, I am doing that heartily unto the Lord and not unto men. And that makes it holy work. And so I think for me, the holy work of advocacy, of education, of awareness, but lastly, and I think this is the most pivotal for me, the hope mm. that so many people desperately need. I think those four things are what give me the joy, the excitement of telling my story for the millionth time as it did the first time. Mm. Bro, that's beautiful. Sometimes I have these conversations where you can like <laughs> feel the spirit 
through the screen. And this is definitely one of those times talking about everything we do is holy. This feels like a sacred moment in that sense, too. So, again, thank you for honoring honoring us with your story and being so candid about it. But what I love about your story is it's not just one man's story. It's the story now of how you are striving and endeavoring to serve others through this organization called Young Christian Professionals. Tell us about this. Young Christian Professionals, man, this was a real, truly spirit-led movement that started literally while I was in prison. Me and those same individuals that I mentioned who discipled me, uh, I remember one day, man, I was a part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes chapter in Richland Correctional Institution. And I remember sitting there and I'm praying and I'm processing over. What, what you know, sport did you play? <laughs> I, I played football. Um, I, right. was no, I was no good at any other sport. Um, <laughs> I could just be more aggressive and, and I could run fast. So, <laughs> OK, just curious. Very good. Very good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we played football and, 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 you know, I was part of the director of education. So I was in charge of kind of rolling out spiritual education, spiritual formation, uh, implementing spiritual practices, so on and so forth for those who identified as, um, you know, mainstream Christianity. Um, So in any event, going through that process, man, there was just a spirit moment where it was like, man, I was sitting in a room at the library and 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 I just seen a group of uh, what they call heartless villains. That's the biggest prison gang in the state of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so they're like young guys, man, looking for love in all the wrong places and all the wrong faces, just like I was when I started a gang way back at 12 years old. Um, and so I've seen a group of them coming in and, you know, you can just tell they're a ragtag kind of group of guys. They look almost like the little rascals, but like in real life. And so, you know, they're just hitting on each other, laughing and ha ha and kicking. But then like, I'm having some conversation with one of the guys. And he's a super intellectual dude, right? And so I'm having some conversation. And I remember just the spirit tugging at my heart, like, your mission field is there. Wow. And, and so I started unpacking that with, you know, two other, three other guys that discipled me. And I remember being like, man, what are we doing? Like, we complain about gang violence in prison, but what are we doing to stop? Like, I'm tired of hearing the complaints about it. What are, What's the solution? And so... Literally, young Christian professionals birthed out of that, um, designed to really, truly develop character from biblical studies, coupled with executive etiquette training to help them navigate the, the, the professional world, whether that was you know going to the workplace or if it was going into their own entrepreneurial endeavors. So we taught them soft skills like how to craft emails, how to put on away messages when you are out of the office, taught them how to tie ties and shake hands, taught them about, um, you know, formally running a business meeting and giving mm. them the titles of like chief executive officer, uh, chief operating officer and making them fulfill those roles in our boardroom style setting. Um, and so it emerged into this discipleship program man, that was like coupled with real, raw, authentic life-on-life discipleship. Mm. And the beauty of how it was designed is because we're in prison, we were in a dormitory setting. So like it was 24-hour, seven-day-a-week accountability. Like you couldn't go anywhere off into, you know, your little private room and and do Lord only knows what. Like people were watching you 24-7. So like we held people to a true biblical 
Christian standard of character. Ooh. And if we've seen compromise in that, we pulled their coat and said, hey, or or what we would say, you know, is that we made them aware of, of their <laughs> faux Paul. And um, but we would, you know, pull their coat and say, hey, man, listen, bro, you know, that ain't how we get out, man. So, you know, what I'm saying let's go ahead and tighten it up. I say, you know, I need you to go ahead and do a little bit of, you know, additional work. So maybe it's writing verses in the scriptures um, about a particular thing that they're struggling with. Um, but we also ask them to stop and refrain from any form of alcohol and drugs, mm. tobacco use, pornography. If they were actively involved in gangs, we asked them to refrain from gang activity in this time. Um, and, and I mean, they the 75 men, August of 2015, signed up to be a part of this. Goodness. Yeah. So and you're, you're like still a, incarcerated while this is happening. Yes, so you're leading yes. this group. You're starting this almost movement in in yeah. in your spot oh my gracious yeah. how did you learn about professional etiquette is this one of your another one of your self-taught things <laughs> it was man I, so i picked up a book so in prisons they have libraries and so i went to the library and i seen I, i'd never had a job before so i was like man i need to figure out like what this whole like employment looks like i got locked up at 16 so i was like man i need to figure out what all this looks like so on and so forth um and I picked up a book. It was called 101 Tips About Professional Etiquette. <laughs> and, and, and so I'm reading this book and I'm like, man, this is like a treasure chest of gems that I need to tell the world. man. and so <laughs> I, I literally I literally wrote the author of the book. I said, hey, this is what we're doing. And we want to know if we can incorporate your book as part of our program. She responded, yes, we had, you know, no issues with copyrights now. And we rolled that baby out to when I left prison in 2017, we had over 280 men who had went through our program. Whoa. In two years. Whoa. That is a massive, massive enrollment rate. (laughs) And I love that story. (laughs) Like you just never know what book on the shelf is just going to grab somebody? So that's that's fantastic, man. So so you're you're you're, you're released in 2017, um, and then is it immediately like okay, I need to make this organization, Young Christian Professionals? Did you try to find something else first, or how did you continue with this uh, ministry? Yeah, man. So it was definitely a holy calling that I knew had to become my life's work. Like okay. I knew this was straight from the Lord. Um, he gave us a vision. We wrote it down, made it plain. And, you know, I was having conversation with the three other co-founders and I'm like, hey, look, man, like what's the vision for when we go home? Mm-hmm. Like this is cool in here. Mm-hmm. But what are we going to do to make sure we never, ever see other people come down this path? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to be honest, man, the guys that were around the table, if I'm being transparent, Dr. Tisby, they, they, they're lifers, man. Mm-hmm. Had been locked up since 18 years old. You know what I mean? And so, like, and at, at this point, man, we had collectively over 70 years of prison experience just wow. at the table. And so, you know, when I asked that question, they said, man, I, I don't know what we're going to do, but I know the one who does. And so let's lean on him. Mm-hmm. And so, man, we began to pray and process what that looked like. When I came home in 2017, I'll be honest with you, there was like, I think in every great apostolic pioneering work, there's these moments where it's it, it looks like you're stumbling, but what you're doing is you're getting firmly planted. Mm-hmm. And 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 
And, and so, like, you know, you know how it is in football, right? You do the little two steps, put your hands on your knees, and, and then you're in a firm stance, right? Like, I think that's the journey in apostolic callings. I think that's the journey in entrepreneurial endeavors. It's almost this pitter-patter till you find that firm foundation, and, and, and then you get set. Mm. And so 2017, 2018 were kind of those years where I was pitter-pattering. I really didn't know this experience of like trying to capture the moments of my own reentry journey so that I could articulate that with biblical truth to others navigating that journey and giving them the tools, the education and the support that they needed in order to be successful in their reentry. I had never been successful in my reentry, right? So like First I didn't time know doing what it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so trying to capture those moments was almost like that pitter-patter. Um to gain firm footing. And so, you know, I, I, I worked, you know, one job. I was like, hey, I'm going to just work one job at that point. I said, man, I got I got to map out how to, you know, do nonprofit paperwork. I had to file with our secretary of state. Then I had to file with the IRS. And then I come to find out that, you know, when we built, made this program in prison, in order to be a separate entity in prison, you had to charge what they call membership dues. In the nonprofit world, at least here in America, that makes you a 501c4 instead of a C3. Mm. And it's because when you charge membership dues, you become for an exclusive population. Ah, okay. And so it caught us in this whole hucklebuck of, of, of a rigmarole. And I'm looking at my, I'm, I'm just praying and I'm saying, Lord, like you got to show me the way. Um, because I don't know what to do at this point. Like I can't change our articles of incorporation and bylaws because we'd have to change the whole entire program. Right. Like, so I'm just trying to reconcile with the Lord. And, um, finally, man, we came to a place where, you know, there was a lawyer who was doing some pro bono work and I just explained our situation. I said, listen, man, I, I don't know what, you know, you're into. And I don't even really have any other motive than to say, Hey man, is there something that we can do differently? Mm -hmm. I'll pay you for your time. I don't mind that. And so 2019, we finally became a 501c3 um, via this pro bono lawyer um, crafting out some of that paperwork for us. Um, in any event, um, you know, now we're into the funding issue. Right. Yes. So, so that's a whole nother conversation. But here was the blessing through this this process. 2020, we know, man, the world changed forever with COVID. For us, what that gave me time to do was to lay out before the Lord. And to really, really ask him what he wanted this ministry to mm -hmm. be outside of those walls. And I remember just as clear as day, him kind of laying out blueprints of, of what it looked like to be safe, stable, supportive, faith-based approach to reentry. And so we became, uh, in essence, a reentry program and, and community and, and organization. Um, and now, man, we get the honor and privilege of serving across the state, all the way from Cleveland, Ohio, down to Cincinnati, Ohio. Everybody on our team has the lived experience of being justice involved. Everybody on our team is passionate and motivated to do this work because they know it matters because they've been impacted by it. And everybody on our team, we got 75 people, uh, a combination of people that are paid and also a combination of people that are volunteers, um, 75 teams, uh, 75 people who are implementing teams in every single 
city in the state of Ohio passionate about doing discipleship with men and women coming home from prison. Whoa. Whoa. That is beautiful. And that is a beautiful vision. Um, as you look at the landscape of incarceration, um, you know, Christians have been trying to do stuff in prisons for a while. And I wonder what your insights or perspectives are on, uh, you know, typically like white evangelical organizations getting involved in, in terms of their approach um, to to the gospel and sharing it on the inside. What what are your thoughts on that? Man, I got so many. Um, yes. I, I, so I, I, I'll share this. Um, I think it's three things. I'm going to boil it down to three things that I think truly need to be addressed. I'm going to just call it what it is. Okay. So these three things are this. <laughs> so I think um, white savior complex trickles in when we have white evangelicals coming into prisons and just simply doing it programmatically. Hmm. There's no relatability. There's no relationship building. There's no, um, you know, communal collective transferring of, of one another's resources. Hmm. Um, it's more so let me come in and save you. And, 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 and what that does is that puts a disparity between the people who are receiving the program or the Bible study or the service and the people that are coming in. And I think that leads to the gap in, in, in follow through. Right. So like if, if, if somebody came to you, Dr. Tisby and was like, Hey, look, man, I'm really passionate about justice, but here, let me tell you how you're doing it wrong. And I'm going to give you all these solutions that I think you need and then walk away and say, okay, I'll see you next week. Uh, you you read read my comments section, okay? <laughs> All right, yeah. So you know what I mean. Uh, it's kind of that 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 connectivity piece that that gets missed when people just come in for programs or Bible studies, or and there's no relational component. There's no um, we call it man synergy. Um, there's no holisticness to it. There's just this. I'm going to give you what I think you need, and 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 hopefully it works. And mm-hmm. and so I think. Yeah, the fact that there's no lived experience there is a thing that needs to change. I think people with lived experience need to be valued. I think they need to be seen as assets. And I think they need to speak in those spaces and at those tables where decisions are being made. Um, So that white savior complex, I think, is a big thing. Um, Number two, we have been fighting, I think, what is the wrong battle. Hmm. I think we go into prisons and say, man, they just need to change the way they think. They just need to be transformed by the gospel. And, 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 and yes, I do believe that the gospel is the power unto salvation. I truly believe that. Um, but I also believe there needs to be some tangible things that follow that. Okay. We preach the gospel. Somebody places their faith and trust and full dependence upon the atoning and prop- propitiation work of Jesus Christ. Right? Now what? Because, man, I've been doing this for decades. Hmm. And my thinking needs to be renewed. My heart needs to be softened and transformed. I need a transplant. I don't even need a new heart. I need a whole new heart. Mm-hmm. What are we doing to give people a new heart? How are we equipping people with the renewing of their mind and truly giving them not just education, but the resources to pursue? Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about finances. I'm talking about community networks. I'm talking about man, social constructs. I'm talking about a myriad of things. I don't think we're fighting the right battle. We're trying to fight them up here 
but it has to start here, mm. right? And so I think a lot of times when we fight it from a mental capacity rather than a heart level, um, we miss the mark. And so, yeah, I think there needs to be a whole redemptive change in how we approach this conversation. And that's because, I, I you know, the gospel is, is definitely the power unto salvation. Mm-hmm. But now what do we do after salvation? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And yes. so I think that's the conversation that gets missed when um, people come into prisons and want to do worship services and programs and Bible studies. And it's no practicality behind it to say, hey, look, man, I'm going to work on what you want a reentry plan. And I'm going to talk about, man, some of the barriers you might experience. I'm going to talk about some of the challenges you might face. See what I'm saying? Like those are some of the like, okay, faith without works is dead, but also, you know, work without faith is dead. Right. So like Mm -hmm. if if that statement is true, the opposite is true. And so, you know, being able to couple this notion of like, yes, place your faith in Jesus, but let's get active. Let's get Mm -hmm. busy. Let's Mm -hmm. really start doing some soul work. Um, I think that's I think that's another conversation that could go a lot, lot, lot longer. But I think we're fighting the wrong battle. And then third, I truly don't think people believe the power of redemption. Wow. Okay. I don't think they really truly believe redemption is possible for certain individuals. And so because of that, we, we, we placate, we place Band-Aids on, we, we, we try to address symptoms rather than root causes. Because we don't think redemption is possible for me. So, like the fact that my story is something that makes people amazed. And what happens if I told you I know 150 people with a story worse than mine? Mm. But because we don't believe in the power of redemption, this Saul to Paul conversion that seems just like, oh man, that was only an Acts in the Bible. And you know, he's seen Jesus face to face. No, like I encountered Jesus too. People in prison encounter Jesus too, and they come home made new. Second mm. Corinthians five, you know what I mean? Like, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. I don't think we believe people can become new creatures. Yeah, and so I think that's the other piece that that yeah, I think some of this work gets cumbersome because we miss those three things. I think we sometimes have the white savior complex and we can be black folks with that too. Just so you know. <laughs> okay. Yep. 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 Oh, um, so we want to be the savior, man. You know, I heard in the good old black church language, man, I used to go to a Kojic church in Mansfield, Ohio. Um, shout out to man, the, the amazing and anointed pastor Jordan. But um, we went to a Kojic church and uh, I remember them saying like, you ain't Jesus, man. Huh? You ain't Jesus, man. You cannot save the world, man. And so really, really, truly understanding that, man, as, as, as Christians, yes, we have the anecdotes, but it is the spirit work of the Lord that truly brings about the tangible fruit in the believer's life. We, uh, we, we, you know, we can work it out all we want to, but it is the spirit of the Lord that manifests the fruit. And so we have to really, truly believe that. And I think we lean into that. And when that fruit is showing, then we start pruning and, and and harvesting and getting active with that fruit, right? It's like a good old watermelon at the cookout. <laughs> when you see that watermelon come out, I don't know about you. I love watermelon. Yes, sir. I sincerely do. And so um, I, my wife, she's not a watermelon fan. You know what I mean? And she's from you deep know. south Nashville. I'm like, okay, cool. You know Opposites what I mean? attract sometimes. She I like, get it. You yeah. don't like watermelon. 
<laughs> so, but you know, it's that fruit that like once you cut that watermelon open, man, the party is beginning. And, mm. and you know what I mean? I think that's the, the, the essence of true spiritual fruit in life. Um, and then I think, man, you know, also just fighting the wrong battle, man. We, we, we deal with this stuff on a head level and we have to start at a heart level because it's a heart transplant that needs to take place, not re-education. Some of these guys that I work with, man, they are they are doctorates, man. Yeah. PhD level thinkers. Yeah. And I'm talking about strategic planning, systems changing. I'm, all, I'm talking about all that stuff, man. Marketing gurus, people who study the systems and can tell you the next five years how the system's going to look and then come to you with the solution to say, hey, if you don't want to get here in five years, you need to start this here now in prison. So I think we're dealing with the wrong issue a lot of times. And then lastly, I just think, man, we don't really truly believe what the Bible says about redemption transformation and restoration. And I want you to advise us all how we can get involved. But you did mention at one point um, along the lines of redemption, these collateral sanctions that continue after people have done what the court said they were supposed to do. But there's still more because to your point, We don't truly believe in the spiritual cosmic power of redemption, nor do we necessarily believe in even just legal or justice-oriented redemption in the here and now. So can you talk about that? Yeah, no, that's that's super big. So nationwide, there's 30,000 collateral sanctions that individuals who have compromised backgrounds or criminal convictions or are justice involved, however you want to word that, I think that 30,000 collateral sanctions happen after they're released from incarceration. Our American justice system is built on punitive justice, which essentially says, if you do this, you get this, right? And it's a punishment for a crime committed. Um, There is no pathway for people to be restored back to rightful citizenship. And we see that with people who had to move the ban the box movement. The mm-hmm. fact that they even had a box on an application that you had to check is heinous, man. It's an exclusionary tactic designed to set people up back into this repetitive cycle. I think the other thing is, you know, housing pieces, right? So the number one reason in our nation people commit crime is because of homelessness and poverty at least according to the punitive justice system. And so when you add the collateral sanction that says landlords can deny you housing access based on a criminal conviction, you're telling me that the problem you're saying is the problem is not really worth a solution as the punitive justice system. Because you're saying as the justice system, the number one reason people commit crimes is because of poverty and homelessness. But then you create collateral sanctions that policy and legislate individuals like myself who have compromised backgrounds cannot get access to housing. It's broken by design. Mm. And, and, and so, yeah, I think those collateral sanction pieces, I mean, you can look them up in your own respective states, in your own respective cities, municipalities, counties, so on and so forth. Um, I know here in Ohio, uh, in August of 2022, to August of, uh, I'm sorry, August of 2021 to August of 2022, 1,000. 000-
462 new collateral sanctions were implemented in one wow. year's period of time. And these are these are collateral sanctions are um, policy implementations that say if you have been convicted of a felony and you're released, here are the additional consequences yep. of that and conviction and Absolutely. barriers. And and it's so punitive. It's punitive on the front end, right? But it's also yep. punitive on the back end because it says even after you've served your time, even after you've done what was required by the courts, there's all these additional hurdles and issues and um, the ways of circumscribing your freedom mm-hmm. that continue after your incarceration. Absolutely. Man, that's bogus. <laughs> man, man. And, and I think that's why it makes it a fight. You know what I mean? I think that's why it's the, it's the fight of, you know, fighting the good fight. Yes. Because I think that it is truly... Uh, these systems are built on racism, man. And and we can, you know, we can try to dance around that conversation, but like truly think about the 13th Amendment being the only way slavery is still legal in our nation. Mm. And so then we talk about the disparity of and how- And you're talking about the exception clause where, where people are legally declared free and, and can't be forced into labor except if convicted of a, a, a crime. A crime. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the only way slavery is still legal. And 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 so they 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 implement that in a myriad of different ways. Of course, we know man probation, supervision, um, redlining, all of these things are designed right by systems to, uh, you know, keep people in those situations. And so um, and continue to repeat the cycle. And so it is the same way with the justice system mm-hmm. that like when you deal with the numbers of, of the justice system. So people with one felony conviction. Literally 10 times more likely. To become homeless. One felony conviction, you talk about earning wages, people with one felony conviction. Literally 86 percent of them will make less than $30,000 a year. Whoa. 86% one felony conviction. 66% of individuals coming home from prison come home with unaddressed mental health issues. Oof. And I mean, literally, the number one leading... So, so number one is, is medical in Ohio. So our GPI in the state of Ohio, medical... Number two, the penal system. Mm. What is GPI now? Uh, so gross product income. So okay. essentially what produces the economic uh, stability of your state. And so number one is healthcare. Uh, okay. Number two is the penal industry. They're making money off of it. $3.1 billion a year just in the state of Ohio. Just in the state of Ohio. Nationally, it's $177 billion that are profited from the penal system. And anytime you private, (laughs) and thus you have the mass incarceration, thus you have policies and legislation that criminalizes behaviors that are really minor misdemeanors. I literally know people who are in prison over petty marijuana charges and doing double digit numbers. Goodness, gracious. double digit numbers because there's an incentive to keep this system on. going. Oh my Come god, it, it, it's just like 
race-based chattel slavery. This is why it yes, took sir. a civil war and a constitutional amendment to finally bring emancipation because there was so much money involved. Brother, there's so much here, and and I'm learning with every word you speak. I can imagine that folks who are listening to you are in the same position, and they're they're outraged, they're um, interested, and and they want to take action. So for for everyday folks, uh, how can we both support your work with young Christian professionals as well as the broader movement? for justice in terms of in, uh, mass incarceration and, and uh, everything associated. Yeah, man. So absolutely. You want to support young Christian professionals. You can check us out at www.youngchristianprofessionals.org. You scroll to the bottom. There's a place there you can donate. You can get educated. There's all kinds of resources on there that can help you kind of begin that journey. We provide consultation we provide coaching, we provide implementation, program design, all birthed out of lived experience. If you want to have a conversation about that, you can email us. All of the contact information is on the website, social media as well, YCP Leadership. You can check us out on any platform that you're associated with. Um, we got a podcast called YCP Talks, you know, where everybody in the conversation is bringing their lived experience to the table. Uh, and we're dealing with, we're dealing with uh, re-entry, entrepreneurship, and faith all at the same table. And it's the place where it all collides, right? So um, you could definitely tap into that. I would say if you wanted to get active, you 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 jump off of, you know, listening to this and, and you want to get active right now, I would say start with the justice-involved individuals in your immediate sphere of influence. Mm. You, I, I'm telling one in three Americans have a criminal background. Mm. One in three. So you, you you can go down your street in your neighborhood and somebody there has the lived experience, even if it's just a frequent user of a jail. That person has the lived experience of being justice involved. They know what it feels like to be in the justice system. Lean into their collective wisdom. Lean into them. They are assets. I am telling you, the world's problems have solutions and they come from people who are in prison. <laughs> if yeah. you just give them the room to be validated, to be seen as the true image of God that they are and that they possess, I'm telling you what, they will bring so much value. They will bring so much, uh, you know, productivity and efficiency. And I'm, I'm, I'm willing to say they will bring even finances to your current community your state community, your city, I'm telling you, there are assets to the community. Lean into that local demographic, uh, whatever that may look like, and just listen. You don't need to teach, don't need to do anything. Just be present. Just be present and learn and grow and allow the spirit of God to minister to your heart. Um, I think that's step one. I think step two, if you wanted to take that a step further, use and leverage whatever sphere of power and influence authority that you have and give them the room. Hmm. Give them the room, bring them to the table. Let them tell their story. You don't need to tell it for them. They are competent enough to tell their own story and they can articulate it very well, probably a lot better than most individuals in that room. Give them the room, let them be in those spaces. I would say thirdly, if you say, okay, that's cool. I can do that. Here's what else I want you to do. I would say locally, begin to research, study your policy, your legislation, 
and look at some of the systemic barriers that have been implemented locally, just locally. You don't even have to start with your state, just start with your city or your mm. county or your municipality, wherever. And, and, and just look locally. What systemic barriers are there in place for individuals re-entering society? And then I would say, pick one, just choose one that you are willing to push the gates of hell back for. Mm. Whatever that may be, whatever that may be, it may be dealing with the family nucleus. It may be dealing with women that are pregnant and justice involved. It may be dealing with individuals that are criminalized for human trafficking. It may be individuals, you know, whatever the case may be, whatever the Holy Spirit stirs up inside of you, select that. And invest yourself in that. Invest yourself in that. And that means, I mean, not just time, not just talent, but that means treasures. Yeah. So that means, man, you know, put your treasures where that passion is. Because I'm a firm believer that wherever our treasure is, our heart is going to follow. Mm. And so if we say we value these things, but we never put up the dollar to value these things, do we really value these things? So that would be the three ways that I would say you could get active today if you wanted to. Man, Stanley, you're talking about uh, when you were incarcerated, how how you basically, you know, walked the talk and demonstrated through your lived witness that this was real to you. Through your work with young Christian professionals, through your words on this show, you're walking the talk and just viewing your life. Uh, the way you live it, the the passion with which you live it, the the way you seek to serve, um, is truly a living testimony and a living witness, brother. I am so grateful that you're one of our witness fellows. I'm so grateful that you joined us on this fighting racism series, and we really appreciate all that you're doing to educate, uh, build awareness, and bring hope in these situations. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Dr. Tisby. I appreciate you, brother, and thank you uh, for just being an advocate and ally, man, and being somebody to link arms to advance the kingdom. It's a blessing. Anytime. A final word on the topic of incarceration. Two quotes from Brian Stevenson. One, We have a criminal legal system that rewards the rich and the guilty and punishes the poor and the innocent. Brian Stevenson also asks us, what if you were judged by the worst thing you ever did, by the worst moment? Brian Stevenson also tells us, we are more than the worst thing we've ever done. And yet when it comes to people in the criminal legal system, we judge them by one day, one week, one moment, one second, one decision, perhaps for years, decades, or even the rest of their lives. If freedom means anything in fighting racism, then we have to change how we treat those who are incarcerated. Let's be faithful stewards of the hard-earned progress secured by those who came before us. Fighting racism requires action. Today, we've heard a story that invites the question, what will you do to fight racism today? Think on it. More importantly, act on it. 
Fighting Racism is a miniseries powered by Footnotes with Jamar Tisby and is made in collaboration with the Religion News Service with support from Zondervan Reflective, the publishers of my book, How to Fight Racism. Our producer for the show is Bo York, with special thanks to Catherine Post, Paul O'Donnell, Roxanne Stone, and Adele Banks. Visit religionnews.com for articles with our guests. And our guest this week is Stanley Franker. You can learn more about his work and how you can support him in the show notes for this episode. I've been your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, and we'll see you next time on Fighting Racism.